I just got back from Egypt a couple weeks ago. And uh, when you go short-term to serve the Lord in a missions context, it's always uh, energizing and faith-building. But there were some things about me, about this experience for me that were really shocking. And I feel like I've heard a lot of the stories and things, but uh, I experienced there in Egypt an openness to Jesus that really uh, uh, surprised me, especially amongst the young men. Um, at the end of that time, I met with uh, uh, an Egyptian guy who serves in several different uh, Middle Eastern contexts, uh, several different countries, and he said, North Americans, Americans, Canadians, been coming here for generations to talk about Jesus, to share the gospel. And he said, I'm just glad you can be here now. And he's talking about me and, and you, plural, my, my team that came with me. He said, it just doesn't seem right that for all these years of coming here, that, that you guys should miss out on these days of openness to Jesus, these days of harvest after all these generations of sowing. Um, is, you know, when you sit here in this context, you don't hear that very much. You know, you get the idea that all the Middle East is just people that want to, uh, you know, kill all the Christians and stuff like that. But he went on and told me about uh, a born-again believer in the Saudi royal family in Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's where Mecca is, right? Where, where the Muslims do their pilgrimage to. And so about uh, um, six new believers in Yemen from this last month, about just the spirit of openness in many of these places that, from our view, seem really, really closed. And I just want to say, there aren't any closed doors for the Lord. There aren't, you know. God is at work. God is at work in ways that are greater uh, than we know and uh, that, that go deeper than what we can see. And uh, that's certainly true in the Middle East. Um, switching to what we're going to talk about today, I would think I could make the same statement. That's true here, too. Sometimes it's obvious, whoa, look what God's doing. You know, and there's all these things that you're cheering about, and it's, you know, uh, every day it's some new wonder of what God is doing. And then there's seasons where uh, it seems like a grind. Like, what is God doing anyway? And there's some other seasons where it's like, is God doing anything here? And I just want to say, God is at work. Sometimes we can't see it. But God is at work way deeper and way stronger than what we can see or what we know. Um, <clears throat> as you know, we're in a bit of a transition here at the church. Um, personally, I got a little transition going on, too, and leadership at International Messengers. And, and so this stuff we're going to talk about today, um, it hits pretty close to home. Maybe I could say a little too close to home, um, <clears throat> because it's like I'm going to stand up here and talk about it. I probably need to uh, um, take it for myself as well. Um, this message this morning, uh, I just want to say, is 
for the leaders of this church. Um, Mark and Mark and Alex and Chris and Steve. And I hope I didn't skip any of those guys. And uh, Nick and Nick and Jesse and Ryan, uh, Amber and Grace. It's for the, the leaders of this church. But if it was just for those people, you could have all stayed home, right? Um, so I trust that there's some things in here that are for all of us, but the point I'm trying to make is that I and, and some of the rest of us that are in leadership positions here, we need to take this to heart. Um, we need to be at the front of that line on listening to the things that this says, okay? Uh, second thing, I would just want to clue you in about how uh, I'm going to do this. I want to read the verses and talk about John the Baptist and Jesus and their situation uh, that the verses describe, and then give you some questions that kind of arise out of that text that probably are relevant here too, like relevant here at our church, relevant for me, for you, our relationships, all that stuff, okay? So... Um, the transition that we're going to read about is John the Baptist and Jesus and John's followers and Jesus's followers. And, uh, you know, there was some rough spots in that transition from John the Baptist as the prophet leader person to Jesus as the Messiah leader. Um, We'll talk about that here. Let's start with, uh, with the text. Uh, John chapter 3, uh, verse 22 and following here. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time there with them there baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. So there's the conflict right there. Um, Interesting, this is the only place in Scripture that talks about Jesus ever baptizing anybody. And it's also the only place that gives us an indication that John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus' disciples had any overlap at all. But apparently they did. Um, you might say, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, why does John have any disciples at all, right? Shouldn't they all be following Jesus? Um, but it's pretty normal in that day for a, a leader, a teacher, to have a circle of people who were his disciples. Um, you might think of it like apprentices, you know? So if you were a, a carpenter growing up under, uh, or, or growing up as the apprentice to a master carpenter, you know, you do all the things that he does. You know, you get taught things, told things, but there's a lot of things you're just kind of absorbing, too, from being in that environment and being around him. Same thing for the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and the teachers, uh, very, very similar. Um, so it wouldn't be 
necessarily, uh, there wouldn't necessarily be a conflict between John having disciples and Jesus having disciples. But as you probably know, sometimes uh, we tend to create problems and conflicts where none need to exist, right? Um, I trust that's not just me. We understand uh, creating of conflicts, creating of problems. There's a lot here that I wish I knew. When they come to John with this uh, uh, thing about Jesus and Jesus' disciples, um, what's the tone here? Is it confusion? Is it anger? Is it jealousy? Is it some combination of all those things? Insecurity? Um, We don't know. We don't know. We have a few little indicators that clue us in, but there's a lot that we're unsure about. And that kind of brings me to the first question. Um, What is this really about? Okay, so we're told in the text that uh, some questions arose about uh, ceremonial cleansing, and, and it was part of the story, was using water for religious ceremonies and baptism and such. But, you know, so that was part of the debate they had with these other Jews, but then when they come back to talk to John, they don't really mention any of that exactly. Uh, It's more like, you know, this guy you said is the Messiah, he's over here baptizing, and we're supposed to be here baptizing, and this is our turf, and after all, you're the Baptist, Uh, come on. Maybe John's disciples uh, just felt insecure about uh, what this meant for them. But a good question, if you're in a season of transition, a season of conflict or tension or whatever, is what's this really about? Because it seemed like there's the thing they were arguing about or having the discussion about, and then the thing that... uh, um, that they come to John about. I can identify with this really well. Um, I hesitate to bring this up in this context, uh, but when Tammy and I argue, um, usually there's the thing that I bring up as a point of argument, and that thing, whatever it is, um, gets mixed in with all of my pride and selfishness, and oversensitivity, and then my insensitivity towards her. And you take all that and mix it together, and it's like an accelerant. You know, you light the match, you, and um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's not just me, right? <laughs> um, but after a little while, it's like that thing that was the thing in the beginning, it's not even on the radar anymore. It clearly wasn't what this was really about. It was about some stuff I had going on in here. Um, Second question, uh, as you go down through these verses, they say to John, they say, the man you met, the man you identified as the Messiah, you know, it's interesting, they, they don't say, the Messiah is doing dot, dot, dot. No, no, the one that you called the Messiah and told us about. 
That's how they identify Jesus. And so there's some trust issues here. They don't trust Jesus as the Messiah. They don't see Jesus as uh, having authority as being from God or being the very son of God or being the savior of the world, which John has already made really clear they're just not bought into that yet. But it's not just that they don't trust Jesus himself. They don't really trust John. You know, John has said he's the Messiah. John has said, made clear the pathway. And John has used the word Savior and Messiah talking about Jesus. So they should be starting to get it. But I don't know, maybe it's a lot like our days. Um, who trusts our leaders nowadays? I'm not even going to bring up political names, but do you trust any of them? There's this absence of trust in our culture to people in spots of authority. And, uh, you know, the government, it's like an easy target to talk about this. But if you talk about corporate leaders or school leaders or hospital leaders or church leaders or fill in the blank, there's similar sorts of dynamics at play in our culture. Um, who can I trust? Uh, obviously, there's some that probably shouldn't be trusted. Of course there are. But the flip side of that is uh, we can't just shut the trust dial or turn the trust dial to zero and say, I'm not going to trust anybody. You know, um, we need to assess who can we, but then we also need to be willing to. So there's two things going on there. Um, <clears throat> third, third question. Uh, and this is where they really show their cards. They say to John, everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. And, okay, again, there's a lot that I wish we could see the video or be there in person to know how did they say that, really? But what I picture it is kind of two-year-old-ish. Everybody's going to him, and they're not coming to us. <clears throat> Their own issues were confusing the whole deal, okay? Um, Their rabbi, their beloved leader, John, had praised Jesus publicly, had promoted Jesus publicly. Maybe they thought that they should have got a little bit of that coming back towards them. But here instead, we got this place where there's some water, we're doing some baptism, and Jesus is on the other side of the puddle doing the same thing. Um, the nerve of Jesus to do that. I wonder what they felt was at stake. That's a great way. How do my issues confuse the situation? Well, I can't answer that in a conflict. I can't answer that question uh, in the middle of some of my own transition processes because I'm blind to, to much of it. But if I can identify what's at stake for me, what do I feel like is at stake? then it helps me figure that part out. So like John's disciples, they might have felt like if Jesus becomes you know, more popular, more followed, 
well, then what do we do with our lives? I mean, we gave up everything to attach ourselves to John, to apprentice under John, and now what? Maybe they felt like there was a, like a whole lot at stake. And so they come to John with, with this two-year-old thing um, instead of asking, uh, instead of just asking with a clean-hearted spirit. Um, humility. Let's read the next set of verses here, starting at verse 27. John never uses the word humility in here, by the way, but I think it's pretty clear that's what we're talking about. Um, John replied, no one can receive anything from God unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I'm filled with joy at his success. He must become greater, and I must become less and less. No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. Um, I take that statement from the scripture and, and attach this question for it uh, to it. Am I thankful for what God has given? Uh, everything I have is from him. James talks about that, about every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of light. Um, am I thankful for what God has given? Um, God gave John a place in the society, a position an influential position. We go from John's situation over to ours. Um, Whatever the position is, it has unique opportunities that are just for you. That's the way God does. So let's not talk about leaders and followers and hierarchies and stuff like that. The role that God's given you has unique opportunities for you. And so that's something to be thankful for. It's something to pursue and celebrate. Um, I have this friend who, um, <clears throat> his, uh, when his daughter was a little girl, uh, she got real mad, and she decided she was going to run away from home. Okay, about eight or nine-year-old girl. And so she gathered a bunch of stuff and found the suitcase and had all her stuff. And she got out on the front porch and, uh, you know, slammed the door behind her. But, uh, um, you know, was kind of waiting for the bigger reaction from mom and dad. And so finally she opens the door back up and announces that I'm running away. Okay. And uh, dad says, okay, okay. Um, you take anything you want as long as, it, as long as we haven't paid for it or, or bought it for you. You can take, take all of it except for that. And uh, uh, she, <clears throat> she said, well, that's everything. <laughs> um, that illustration of the little girl who's unwittingly acknowledging that everything she has is from mom and dad. She, in that moment, doesn't realize that she's actually kind of saying, I'm wrong here. Um, 
that's pretty instructive for us. Everything I have comes from the Lord. Um, in Exodus and Numbers, um, the Israelites complain a whole bunch of times, and a lot of them are about Moses. Like, how could you? How could you lead us out here? You know, it was from slavery in Egypt. Uh, so there was something they could have been thankful for, you know, like through the Red Sea, and, you know, wow. But how could you bring us out here to die in the desert? And so Moses goes to God about that, and what, the, what God says to Moses is, it's not you, it's me. It's not you they're upset with, it's me. Um, and that kind of resonates with the, uh, well, that's everything, because God's the one who's in charge. Um, verse 28, John understood quite well that uh, he was not the Messiah, and he says exactly that. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. Um, do I need to say more about that? Let's just take that statement and insert it. I say let's. Uh, how about if, if I do that too and insert that statement into my attitude today? <laughs> I am not the Messiah. Okay, so anything about position or, or, or recognition or things like that, my rights, how about if I just say, okay, um, what I receive and the role I have and all of that, that's from the Lord, and uh, maybe a little humility would be appropriate here. Um, in verse 29, he says, I am filled with joy. John says that about Jesus. I am filled with joy at his success. So the question there is, whose success am I seeking anyway? Whose success is it that I'm after? Um, the Lord knows. Some of these things I stand up here and it's like, man, I hate saying this. Uh, but, but the Lord knows that sometimes me getting what I want really isn't a win. Um, a lot of times uh, I need very much to not get my way, to not get what I want. Um, am I willing to surrender enough to say, okay, you define what's a win, Lord. You define it instead of me being in charge of that. Um, I used to, ages ago, was a high school teacher, and uh, I remember this high school senior, these two buddies coming into my room, you know, in between classes, and uh, this, this was, uh, this guy's name was Joe, and he was one of those guys with the big arms, with the vein going right up there, and, you know, testosterone just kind of oozing through his veins, and, and uh, <clears throat> Joe was talking to his buddy, they sat I had assigned him to sit front and center. And Joe said uh, uh, to his friend, he's talking about his girlfriend and about how she had said, da-da-da-da-da, but I told her, da-da-da-da. You know, and he's bragging to his friend about how he kind of put his girlfriend in her place, you know? Like, how should, could she even, you know, on the whole macho, 18-year-old, I know it all, you know, and, and I went up, you know, class hadn't started, and I went up, I'd overheard all of it, and, and I just said, Joe, um, even when you win, 
you lose. And and he was he ha 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 ha. And then um, he kind of looked at me like, huh. <laughs> like like there's this realization that's starting to set in that what I had just achieved by putting her in her place actually isn't helping me at all. Uh, it's very, very counterproductive. And so we go through the whole class. They're walking out of that room. I said, Joe, you still thinking about that winning and losing deal? Yeah. How'd you know? <laughs> it was just it was a delightful moment of realization. Uh, whose success am I really seeking? <clears throat> Here we go. Verse 30, John says, He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. The statement kind of cuts to the heart of our pride. It fits with what Jesus says about being poor in spirit. It fits with what Jesus said later about being a servant. Um, And it fits what the Apostle Paul says. I want to read you some verses here from Philippians chapter 2. Let's see, I got them here. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Um, I'd like you to consider the steps down that Jesus took to come here and be your Savior. Okay? Um, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Even though he was God, let go of some of that. Step down. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position as a slave. So not just being a human. That seems like humbling enough if you've been in, in heaven. It, or, yeah, anyway, a slave. And then it says he became obedient, and even to the point of death, and death on a cross, like the humiliation of the cross, all these steps that Jesus took of humility for your sake, in order to provide salvation for me and for you out of his deep love for us. Um, That's some pretty powerful stuff that Jesus would do that for me. Let's talk about church for a minute. Um, In all sorts of religious contexts, not just our church uh, or churches like ours, but all sorts of religious contexts. It's easy for uh, leaders to, I don't know if confused or corrupt, which is the right word. Maybe it depends on the situation, but it's easy to become confused or corrupt about leadership itself when it becomes connected to power. And you hear leaders talk about power and authority 
and hierarchies and submission. Anytime you hear a pastor talk about how his people just don't even know how to submit, probably it's more than just the people that's the issue, right? Um, I think in those contexts where leadership and power get abused, it's because of a complete... Um, a complete failure to understand how Jesus did it, how Jesus led, sacrificing, stepping down, humility. Um, If for those who lead here, if for you in your family, if in your other relationships, if it's costly to you, to be influential in that context, well, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. That's how it was for him. It cost him a lot to provide for us. And if it costs church leaders a lot to provide love and care and such for a group of people, well, that's okay. That's his pathway for, for us. If it costs you a lot, let's not complain about the cost. Let's reexamine the opportunity and be thankful that he's given us this opportunity to walk the Savior's path. Okay. Um, I want to finish this by um, reading these last verses, and I won't preach all over them, okay? But I just want to emphasize the pronouns to uh, give you a sense of him and us and the contrast, okay? Um, He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. The anyone else, that's us. We are of the earth, and we speak of earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, and how few believe what he tells them. Anyone, again, that's us, who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the spirit without limit. The father loves his son has put everything into his hands. And anyone, that's us again, anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the son will never experience eternal life but remains under God's angry judgment. And so I guess I want to conclude this way. Um, Back in that first part of the verses, following Jesus means a lifestyle of promoting him and humbling me. This last set of verses, following Jesus means entrusting myself to him, believing in him, trusting him. Um, The word that comes to mind is surrender. Surrender. And maybe today's your day to surrender anew or surrender like for the first time ever and just say, Jesus, I need you to take charge. Uh, I'm so thankful for what you've done to save me. I just want to acknowledge I need you and I surrender. So any kind, you know, My words aren't the magic words, but a a surrender prayer of some sort seems appropriate. Seems appropriate, no matter where you are on your journey with Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you that you're still at work in this world, in uh, uh, yeah, in our church, in churches like ours, in my family, in my marriage, in my heart, and families and marriages and hearts uh, uh, like mine, and just in places that we've forgotten to expect that you're even at work. We know you are, and so thank you for what you're doing in Egypt and Libya and Morocco and Syria, and yeah, thank you. Thank you that we can count on you like that. And Lord, some of us need to take some courageous steps of surrender, and I just pray, I pray that you'd give us confidence in you. It wouldn't be about us just being strong to give up and strong to fix relationships. I pray that our faith and trust would be in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.